He was a morbidly obese surgeon destined for an operating table and an early death. Now he's a rebel MD who is fabulously fit and fighting to make America healthy again. This is Stay Off My Operating Table with Dr. Philip Ovedia. Well, we're back. Uh, thanks for joining us here on the Stay Off My Operating Table podcast. Bill, who do we have today? This is, I, I think this may be our first official Aussie. Am I correct? Uh, we had uh, Anthony Chafee ah. as well. So our second you're, Aussie. You're second. Yeah. Um, although uh, Anthony isn't native, uh, so maybe he only counts as half an Aussie. <laughs> He's just living there. So Dr. Dr. Max Colhane is our first uh, native true Aussie on the program and uh, really excited to talk with him this week. Um, we, uh, we, we connected, you know, on Twitter, uh, and, uh, uh, Dr. Golhane is, uh, very much, uh, into, uh, metabolic health and, uh, bringing that message down under and, uh, really leading a movement down there. So, uh, really excited to introduce him to our audience. And with that, uh, Max, I'm going to turn it over to you. Why don't you give a little bit of your background uh, what you do and, uh, kind of how you got to where you are today. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Phil. And thank you for, um, for the opportunity to speak to your audience. Look, I'm a, a general practice registrar. So family medicine, we call that general practice here in Australia. And my background is, um, in, uh, I basically found low carb in around 2017 and I was in medical school at, at the time and uh, I, I went through a period late in medical, medical school where I thought eating a plant-based diet was the right thing for me and the right thing for the environment, the right thing for my health, um, the most benevolent thing and and something that I could actively do to kind of improve the state of of the world. And that, that was in 2017 and with a good friend of mine. And it was a very, very instructive year because we ate a diet that was very rich in grains, in legumes. Uh, we were eating tofu and we had relatively low amount of, of animal foods in the diet. Um, just a little bit of lean, lean kangaroo meat, actually. Um, and our, our oils were overwhelmingly olive oil, um, and avocado. And this was a it, this was a very very important time because it showed me personally that this type of diet um, wasn't suitable for my physiology. Um, some of the symptoms I was getting was quite intense bloating, irritable bowel type symptoms, um, just recurrent uh, upper respiratory tract infections, and particularly one that was an aesthetically unpleasing symptom was quite severe acne. And as you can imagine, you know, being a you know mid to late late twenties in in medical school and still having acne, um, it wasn't it wasn't uh, a, uh, something that I enjoyed having. So what I did is uh, somehow I stumbled upon uh, the low carb down under YouTube page, and for those US listeners who aren't aware of it, it's an amazing repository of videos and interviews and presentations uh, with metabolic lifestyle and doctors using a low-carb approach. 
and what I did is I cut out the grains, I cut out the fruit, I cut out the honey, I cut out all the bread and the legumes, and this this acne started imp- improving, and the gut symptoms started improving, and then towards the end of of 2018, I uh, simply. Th- was looking down at my lunch when I was at medical school in, in my final year and I'd prepared some meat with salad and I looked at it and, you know, I'm chewing down on these spinach leaves and I'm thinking to myself, well, do I actually even need to be eating these? And uh, at that time I I started listening to some, or I started watching some videos from Dr. Paul Saladino, Dr. Sean Baker, who were doing a more of a carnivore approach. And at that point I thought, well, no, let's try try this without the the salad and yeah, I, I went carnivore for a pure, strict carnivore for a good probably twelve months, and yeah, I, I can distinctly remember the the point that I went uh, uh, carnivore because I had what I I think reflect now back to a, a period of intense probably about four to five weeks of intense uh, almost euphoria, which I believe was was when I my first went into deep ketogenic metabolism for the first time. And uh, the the, amen- the amount of energy I had was was unbelievable, and just a very very profound subjective feeling of health. So that was, I guess, the point where I was fully converted to this idea of of uh, ketogenic and and very low carb nutrition. And and at the same time, I I met uh my current mentor who I'm working with down here in Auburn, New South Wales, a, a Dr. Rob Sabo, and it, he is one of the Australia's leading lifestyle GPs for for reversing type two diabetes with with low carbon and, and carnivore. So um, all, all that to say, I, I um just did a lot of self learning and did a couple of years in medical school uh, after medical school doing hospital work and working in emergency department. But now I'm here um, down in Albury. And I've just started my family medicine training and and with Dr. Sabo, and I'm very much focused on uh, low carb and, and carnival for all kinds of 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 uses and indications. So, uh, how did your classmates in medical school respond to your biohacking? That that's um yeah, that, that, there's a lot of ki- there are a lot of um kids in the class you could say, and you know I I made a couple of comments here and there, but. At that initial stage, because it was still quite a, a embryonic experiment on myself, uh, I was more—I wasn't um, maybe pushing or, or talking a lot about my personal um, journey. But a couple were, were interested, and and but on the whole, and and Dr. Phil can can attest to this with in terms of our medical colleagues, people do their own thing, and a lot of people have fixed beliefs and strong beliefs about, especially about diet. So it wasn't really um, too much of an opportunity to proselytize or, or, or I guess, convert anyone. What's the? Um, give us an idea of kind of what the lay of the land looks like uh, in Australia. You know, uh, what's the? What would you say kind of the background diet is? What were you eating before you? You know, kind of went to the plant based, uh, and uh, what? Uh, and then I'd you know kind of follow up like to hear about you know what the acceptance of uh, you know, kind of low carb keto has been uh, in Australia uh, that we can maybe contrast with what's going on here in the U.S. Yeah, so Australians have a history of eating meat. Um, lamb, particularly, is very popular. Beef is very popular. We have very high quality lamb and beef um, in, in Australia. So, 
uh, and historically that was the food that that everyone ate if you you ask our great grandparents or our grandparents people uh, especially when i talk about seed oils and and animal fats people said oh yeah my my great grandpa used to have bread with dripping essentially animal fat on on bread so there's a, a deep history of eating plenty of animal foods but more recently um there has been a push or or towards consuming grains so lots of australians eat eat bread eat, eat a wheat-based cereal called wheat bix for breakfast they eat um milo which is essentially like a chocolate malt uh, powder that they mix into milk so there's 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 a lot of carbohydrate consumption muesli which is granola muesli bars granola bars um very very common and and from a fat point of view australians and i'll ask patients in the emergency department or in, in the clinic what what do you what oil do you cook with and almost overwhelmingly it's uh either olive oil or uh vegetable and and, and canola oil and no one is cooking with with butter no one's cooking with with tallow or anything like that so um and that's instructive to me because I, I i wonder about the quality of the olive oil and 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 everything that they're using and almost universally in restaurants and fast food takeaways it's all seed oils um vegetable oil and and canola oil so so we don't have uh, a lot of seed oil uh sorry uh, soy or corn oil and less cotton seed oil but it's mostly sunflower canola and blended uh combination which we call vegetable oil oil here so that's a bit of a background about what most people are kind of eating so a, a little bit of that everyone is eating a little bit of meat but there is this basis of carbohydrates um that uh we that that everyone is is consuming um and in terms of your second part of your question uh what what uh how, how can we contrast that I, i'd also make the point that i don't think there is much uh, highly, highly refined food that people are eating on the on the daily basis. We don't have high fructose corn syrup, um, and I'm, I'm I suspect we might have less um, like glyphosate contamination of of our food because we don't have as much genetically modified wheat uh, and and corn. So so perhaps those are the main differences. And then my uh, understanding is that you know all of the beef there is. Uh, you know, 100% uh, grass raised, essentially, you don't really have uh, the factory farming operations that we have here in the US. Uh, I'm not sure of the exact percentages, but we still have grain fed or feedlot finished cattle. So um, my good friend and regenerative farmer down here, uh, Jake Wolke was mentioning to me that uh, there'll be some beef that's that's called grass fed, but essentially they, they're putting the beef in a feedlot and they're feeding it pelletized grass so it's not hardly the same thing as being on pasture but the access to grass-fed meat in australia is very good here and the the lamb is usually uh even the commodity lamb that you get in the supermarket is uh grass grass-fed and and grass-finished so there is good really good access which is a very very big positive and and you can you can rely on the fact that it is a local um local beef um even if you're going into a supermarket it's going to be australian beef unlike america where it's a bit of a, a lucky dip from what i've heard uh yeah you can you can source local which is very good i i have a question about lamb versus beef um i love lamb but being able to buy lamb uh i live in in the desert 
and uh well it ain't local let me put it that way <laughs> um my understanding is that uh for example in great britain on the on the there in england uh lamb is very popular and it's it's because they just don't take up as much space as cows do it seems like my, my understanding is that uh cows are are probably the best form of red meat protein we can get not so much nutritionally as just simply from an efficiency standpoint if you've got the space to raise cattle you can get a lot more beef out of a cow than lamb out of a sheep um all else being equal cows are 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 better for the ranchers than sheep australia is a big place why is it sheep instead of cows yeah that that's um that's an interesting question i think that there is some there's a different in terms of the the grazing uh habits of the two animals so the sheep i understand are grazing cl closer to the ground and um, i think for cer certain farmers the unit economics works out better um, depending on where they are um, and and the scope or the span of australian uh, uh pastoral land lends itself in certain time certain areas to to different animals so in the northern parts of australia um and the far western parts of australia with a very very marginal arid land we we run a lot of uh cattle called um who, who are adapted to to these rough conditions like santa catrudis and um a drought master and these type of uh, i believe they're indian originally breeds that have been kind of adapted to this area whereas the the lamb that you usually find is um Will depend. I, I believe that they're more um, more improved pastures and and less kind of rough. But, but there is saltbush lamb as well. So yeah, it's it's a bit of a mix. And I think uh, often there's a bit of a farmer preference on what the farmers have been doing. Um, historically, there's mass. There was a massive wool trade in Australia. So whether that's a bit of a legacy as well, um, it's yeah. also a possibility. Um, so I'll throw it to to the two medical doctors here. Is there a compelling nutritional reason to eat one rather than the other um so you know i'll i'll say that lamb uh may actually have some advantages over beef over beef uh lamb uh tends to be higher uh in omega 3s and uh you know uh less uh polyunsaturated fats uh typically in lamb i mean it, it's going to depend on what the lamb is eating uh lamb is a ruminant animal uh so you know a lot of the same advantages that beef uh has uh i i know you know lamb is often nicknamed land salmon uh because it's nearly as high in omega-3s as, as salmon is so uh, there may be some advantages. Um, I agree with you. I love eating lamb. It's just harder to source uh, here in the U.S. Uh, most of the lamb we get is actually, uh, you know, from New Zealand. Yep. Um, but, uh, we, you, you know, depending on where you are in the country, you can sometimes find some local lamb. Uh, but uh, lamb is certainly no worse and, and maybe uh, better on uh, some uh, in some aspects than beef. Yeah, I, I was going to say the same thing is 
from my understanding is it has a more favorable um, fatty acid profile with with those omega three fatty acids. It, it's all it's also a taste. Like some people really really love the taste of of lamb. Well, it yeah, has more I mean, it's it's that characteristic. It just yeah. tastes fantastic. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> all right, so let's. I was just going to uh, ask, you know, uh, while we're kind of getting the background as to what you're uh, dealing with, you know, what what's the rate of uh, metabolic disease and, and are, do you see, uh, you know, obesity and diabetes? Is it as rampant as it is here uh, in the U.S.? Yeah, so it is it is it is very, very prevalent. I mean, I, I, off the top of my head, I'm not familiar with the figures. I think the weight of of bmi over 40 so morbidly obese or those type of bm our fraction is is less but the prevalence of people who are you know just a little bit i guess um you know overweight and if you put a a waist if you put a tape measure around their waist would be elevated you know very 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 common and even in in younger people you know in their early 30s or even late 20s it's very, very common to see people, you know, just beginning that process of nudging these these higher BMIs. So, and that's what that's what you see just just typically. And I'm I mean, in my two years in the emergency department, you know, everyone that I would would see, um, no matter no matter what the problem was, almost invariably would have a raised BMI and have a raised waist circumference. Um, and it makes you really wonder, you know everyone's presenting for these issues that are unrelated to or seemingly unrelated to their metabolic disease. But it just speaks to the fact that there is probably some underlying association about susceptibility to probably infection, susceptibility to to all these other conditions that require hospitalization if we are uh, overweight or metabolically unwell. So... First of all, you're you're singing off our our play sheet. We love that. Um, we I, I, and I'm going to leave it there because I've I've got another question I want to want to follow up with. Um, regarding metabolic health and specifically the obvious uh, element of poor metabolic health, which is obesity. I'm old enough to remember when it changed in the United States. I graduated from high school in 1978, and if I, I've still got my high school yearbook. If I pull it out and flip through the pages, you will not see any fat kids, any. Now, it wasn't a gigantic high school. There were 800 in my high school, but the, we didn't have fat kids, period. There were a couple chubbies, and chubbies back then were fat. We thought they were fat because everybody was slender. And in the mid-80s, I mean, I remember this so clearly when the the usual suspects declared that margarine was good, butter was bad, eggs were bad. You know the drill. And that's when I saw the waistlines explode. And, you know, most of what Dr. Ovedi is doing, what do, what you're doing, Dr. Gulhane, is 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 pushing back against whatever the heck it was that happened back then. My question is, with that as background, did it happen at the same time in Australia? Or did it take a while to to roll through? And if so, when did it happen in Australia? Do you know? Yeah, that that's it. That's a great question. And 
the I guess the McGovern report was the first event back in 1977 when they first started recommending uh, replacement of polyunsaturated oils in the place of of animal fats. Um, and then subsequently the dietary guidelines in the US kind of perpetuated that kind of trend. Uh, Australia, just like all the other countries, was has basically mirrored that and the our dietary guidelines I believe from the 18, 1980s has, has, has said something similar. And I think that since, I mean, since I've been around or since I can remember, um, and that was even in, in the you know early 2000s and, and the late 90s, people weren't as overweight as they are now. Um, and I really think that it's accumulation or a compounding of the advice that everyone got. And yeah, as you mentioned, the, the, initial event maybe occurred in in the, the mid mid 80s but um what we're seeing now and especially with the push towards a more plant-based diet uh, i think it's just it's it's you know exponentially upticking um so yeah i mean what what i think since i can remember and again that's mostly through the 2000s and the, the 2010s is that um people are kids are more overweight than ever um, and it reflects the fact that we're eating such a high proportion of seed oils, carbohydrates, um, and other ultra-processed foods uh, in the diet. What's the um, response of your community, the community that you serve as a physician, um, to this outlier type of approach to health? Um, you know, here in the U.S., there's been a, a uh, it feels like an organized opposition to eating in a way that's metabolically healthy. Um, anybody who sticks their head up above the parapet is going to get shot at. Dr. Ovedia uh, has got lots and lots of folks shooting at him. And of course, the the saying is, if you're taking flack, you're over the target. Are yeah. you flack? Uh, I'm not not yet, so maybe I, I need to make a bit more noise. But uh, I, I think there's really people, the average person. They, I like to think, I think they're in, they're, they're being gaslit. So they're in, they're in a um, stage of, you know, oh, I mustn't be doing, I mustn't be, you know, dieting hard enough. I mustn't be exercising hard enough. Um, you know, there there is this 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 mentality that it's them that uh, that aren't doing it's their anything fault right. Yeah, it's their fault. And that's the the pervasive kind of climate that the narrative and that the messaging is promoting, which is if you're overweight and you're obese, it's actually your fault. And, and there's no realization or very poor realization that it's it's in fact that they're being these patients and, and our patients aren't being served by by the advice that they're being given. And and overwhelmingly, you know, they're 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 I see patients who are overweight and they're making a real effort in their exercising and they're still putting weight on. Yeah. And I have to say to them, look, it's not you that are that that are doing the wrong thing. It's you haven't been served. You haven't been told the correct advice. And um, you know, a lot of people are very relieved when they when they hear that. But uh, I think it it feeds into you know the the bigger problem, which is that 
there's been a sub, sub, subsequent and successive messaging. First, eggs are bad. Now, saturated fats bad. Meats bad. Um, eat this, eat that, and patients are just so confused, and rightly they're 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 just at sea with this whole diet and and, and exercise point of view. Um, as for you know taking flack and and putting your head above the parapet. The, you might you might know about Dr. Gary Fetke. Um, if you oh. don't, he he was a, an orthopedic surgeon from Tasmania, and about four or five years ago, he was essentially taken to our medical disciplinary board, um, having been complained by a bunch of dietitians who were essentially protesting his use of a low carb diet for his patients, and I believe the 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 charge was inappropriately reversing his patient's diabetes huh. essentially huh. yeah it, it's it's bizarre huh. and, and hilarious you essentially didn't heal he was them in the, in the uh, approved fashion yeah exactly huh. so he, huh. he was seeing truckloads of patients with end-stage um peripheral diabetic uh, uh foot disease and you know subsequent lopping off toe than uh, more toes than foot than below knee than above knee uh, in his patients in his community and essentially went down his own health journey which you know as I talked to to Dr. Phil about is kind of the catalyst for for doctors like us we all we have to walk the path ourselves before we realize what's what's going on and he walked the path uh, in his own way and then implemented it in with his patients and reverse side of reversing all their diabetes and what he did was basically um, offensive to the status quo, um, and p- particularly the dietetics profession. I'm, I'm sorry and, to laugh, but but this yeah. is just such a familiar story. Yeah, yeah, isn't it? Um, the the I mean, there's always a silver lining, and then and what has emerged out of that issue was that Doctor Doctor he got completely cleared, and he was served an apology but his lovely wife belinda has done a deep deep dive into the interests and into the um the powers that were basically pulling the strings behind that um smear smear campaign and she's done amazing work to reveal the uh influence of the seventh-day adventist church through uh companies like sanitarium um, and all these grain companies uh, and the food industry and and basically these dietitians were um you know for the lack of a better word they were the you know the puppets of of larger interests who were were feeling threatened by um the such an effective use of a low carb diet yeah. so we need to get uh belinda belinda is that chap that was her name yep. belinda fetke yeah. belinda fetke on the yeah. on the show yeah Paul. Yeah, yeah the, both, of them, both, yeah. both Gary and Belinda would be a great guest. Uh, I'll start uh, working on that. Um, it, in um, so you guys have a largely socialized medical system. You know, the government pays for the vast majority of medical care there, and you know, you would think that that would give them the incentive to promote good health and and keep people from getting sick. Um, and uh, yet, you know, my understanding is that that's that's not what happens. Uh, what, I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts on that because you know one of the criticism, one of the, you know one of the uh, sort of uh, you know uh, discussions that goes here you know in the U.S. is our medical system being a largely private medical system is driven by 
taking care of sick people, doing more procedures, prescribing more medications. And it's a, you know, kind of a profit driven system. Uh, but you would think in a socialized system where, you know, there's a limited pool of resources, uh, you would be more focused on keeping people from getting sick in the first place. Yeah, you know, you would think so. And uh, unfortunately, it isn't the case. And very much uh, our general practice approach on what I'm learning and what I've seen is that it's very much focused on managing chronic disease, um, you know, management or, or facilitating. And what this means for diabetes, hypertension, um, is a, just a series of in, increasing number of prescriptions um, as you, you know, slowly watch the patient, you know, got, uh, deteriorate and become sicker and sicker. So you you'd think that um, the the I guess the powers that be would be incentivized to um, I guess to have more outcome or or reverse people's disease in terms of a, a profit point of view. But I suspect that the influence um, from entities that make money from the I guess this disease. Uh, kind of complex are overwhelmingly dictating or perhaps influencing the way medicine is is practiced. Um, and yeah, I think that it is good evidence, um, Philip, of the fact that and unless you have perhaps as long as you have someone in between your the relationship with the the patient and the doctor, in in our case, Medicare, which is a government funded. Uh, healthcare system who pays us as GPs to administer care to our patients. Um, until there is, I guess, more of a direct relationship with us and the patient, you're going to get, uh, I guess, outcomes or treatment outcomes that aren't necessarily directed at um, the, the patient's disease and reversing the, the patient's disease. So, yeah, no, it's not fairyland down here from a um, disease reversal point of view by any means. I think it's I think it's fascinating that we've sat and watched this whole medical debacle unfold over the last I guess 15 years 14 15 years uh Barack Obama was elected president and part of the what drove people to to vote for him was the promise of what eventually became Obamacare the entire bill was written by the insurance agency, and now we're shocked by, by insurance companies. Now we're shocked to find that insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies are making massive amount of monies while the rest of us are getting sicker and sicker and sicker. Um, and yet, to a certain extent, we turn and we look at at the healthcare practitioners and we realize they're they're largely handcuffed by the system itself, even if they want to do the right thing. Doing the right thing literally means risking your livelihood. Now, having said that, it seems like it'd be even more direct in a socialized medicine environment. Can you comment on that? Are you taking crazy chances with your career by going down this path? Yeah. So, so from a financial point of view, and from I guess a practice point of view. So, from a financial point of view, um, my the low carb doctors that that I have worked with and um, are studying under Dr. Robert Sabo, particularly, he describes you know life was easier when he was doing the tick and flick medicine, 
when you're seeing patients Dick in and flick. I love Tick that. and flick, yeah. McDonald's medicine, where you're seeing patients in seven minutes and then, you know, sending them on their way with a new script. Um, and now after he went through his low carb journey and is talking about lifestyle, you know, he's got 20 minute appointments because that's the time you need to discuss about what why people are getting ill and, and how to really uh take the time to help them. So it's it's not an easier path by any means. Um, and it's so that that's a that's a main barrier. And if we think of the average doctor, that not only do they have that, they're going to perhaps be earning working more for less money. They they haven't yet even intellectually or or um, from a knowledge point of view um, understood the benefits of 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 the low carbohydrate approach. So and, and metabolic medicine. So there and I guess there's a trade off for the job satisfaction. I mean, of course, you're going to enjoy your job a lot better when you're actually helping people and you're really really you know, taking people off lots of medications. So I guess we can think about those as the headwinds and they're universal in in in, in medical systems is that the headwinds are the system that you're working under um, and potentially even the, the financial um, remuneration of, uh, of actually solving our patients' problems. Bill, you should, you should comment on this as well. You guys are yeah, doing the I'm- same thing in two different systems. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, I, we've talked about it and, and we've talked with other physicians here on the program. You know, I think Brian Lenskis maybe uh, was one of the ones that said it uh, best. Uh, but yeah, I think doctors are trapped within these systems. And, uh, you know, it seems to be very similar issues, uh, you know, no matter where in the world you are, uh, that the, the the healthcare systems are in a lot of ways handcuffing doctors and uh, keeping us from doing, uh, you know, what we should be doing, which is making people and keeping people healthy instead of just managing their sickness. And um, you know, it, it is very interesting to me to because you know a lot of people here in the U.S. say that socialized medicine is the solution to our problems, uh, and yet we see in countries that have socialized medicine, they 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 haven't solved the problems. And, uh, you know, I, I, you probably, you know, a lot of people that are in the socialized system say, we wish we were, you know, in the US, uh, you know, and, and practicing under that type of system. Um, you know, maybe we do have, uh, there is some more opportunity here in the U.S. I think to kind of break out of the system uh, and and set up a different model and and you know people like myself who have done concierge practices, the direct primary care like Brian Lenskis has, um, you know maybe there's a little bit more opportunity to do that here, um, but on the systemic level, uh, the problems appear to be largely the same. Yeah, um, and to to me that makes sense because I I feel like. The expectation of the average person is that you know the healthcare is not going to cost a lot. It's it's very subsidized here, and I think when it comes to lifestyle advice, um, people are less inclined from a psychological point of view to actually act on the advice that they get unless they're paying money for it. And I think people value whoa, whoa, what, whoa, they, whoa, what whoa, they pay whoa. for. Whoa! I I want to make sure I understood what you just said. Are you saying? that what you observe in australia with with the social socialized healthcare i don't know if that's what you guys call it that's what we call it here in the states socialized healthcare 
that the the mere fact that you have socialized medicine means that people are less likely to follow the advice? I mean, I, I don't want to, I guess, I don't want to paint a, a broad brush um, and I condemn people, but I okay. feel like um, when simply my my observation of of uh, of a small number of patients that I've seen so far, the the fact or that the times where people are most receptive, I think, is when there's been a value exchange. Um, um, and just in, in life as well, if people have paid for something, their tendency to, I guess, execute or act on whatever advice they've been given is is greater. So um, that's where, where I was, I guess, I think the value of something that, that Dr. Phillips doing in the direct, what you mentioned, the direct payer model, is that someone who's um, paid for their care completely um, perhaps might be more inclined to to make lifestyle changes, whereas rather than just go to a doctor, you know, here's another script for your metformin, here's another um, script for your your um, Lipitor and your blood pressure medication, uh, you know, and they're happy to continue doing what they're doing because the perhaps the the total cost, um, and it's changing now because prior to uh, recently, there's there was no gap often people would be what's called bulk build so there wouldn't be any out-of-pocket costs for seeing their their gp or the family doctor now that's that's changing and more and more practices of having to charge uh, a gap fee um but still i i i really think that what what um dr phillips said about the uh, direct care and the concierge services kind of makes sense to me in terms of helping people who are willing um get and make make lifestyle changes yeah and you know I, I would, uh, you know, I, I would say I, I'm not as uh, cautious as you in making these statements. You know, I think the fact that people are disconnected from the cost of their health care uh, is, is a major problem. And, um, you know, here in the U.S., even though we don't have socialized medicine, most people still expect their health care to be largely free. You know, we the, the, the costs here are on the employer, usually, who's providing the insurance as opposed to the government. Uh, but people still largely aren't paying out of pocket for their health care. And they just figure, you know, when they get sick, the you know, their insurance is going to pay for it. Uh, and I, I think that's a major disconnect. You know, um, I, I think if people had a more uh, direct uh, financial uh, stake in their health, uh, that they would pay more attention to it. Um, now, you know, one of the issues we need to uh, kind of, um, you know, conquer is getting people to realize the other costs that are involved with bad health. Um, and also just getting people to understand that there is an alternative. I think the other problem we suffer from is yeah. here, you know, certainly here in the U.S., when you look around you and everyone is sick, you just say, okay, there's no alternative. This is how it is. And the doctors don't tell you that there's an alternative. And uh, so you just go through your life and say, well, this is the best I can do is just managing it and taking the medications. Uh, but when you get the message that it doesn't have to be that way, that you can reverse to type two diabetes, that you can prevent heart disease, uh, you know, uh, those, the people that wake up and, and listen and hear that, uh, they are the ones that then are willing to invest in their health and they realize that that's a worthwhile investment. Uh, so, you know, I can say that the people who work with me are very invested in their health and, you know, 
I don't have problems getting them to follow advice. You know, if it makes sense, if I'm good in giving them good advice and they're getting results from that advice, they're, they are going to follow it. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I think we have many layers of problems that we have to deal with. Uh, but again, it's just interesting to me that, you know, two, what, what look like two different medical systems, you know, get the same results and have the same issues. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and we're competing, I guess in Australia, you can really think of, you know, independent or, um, direct paying model is actually has to compete against, um, the status quo, which is, oh, I can just go to my GP and get a subsidized appointment. So I guess the barrier is that, um, is the, in terms of offering value and price is, is perhaps might, might be even more difficult to a more expensive healthcare system because we're having to, compete against what is essentially almost very subsidized uh, healthcare here. I want to just get y'all's comments on a story that just landed this week. Uh, The single biggest selling anti-heartburn drug in the world, Zantac, which is over the counter, or at least was over the counter here in the U.S., we had a, a, a nationwide uh, pop, a, 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 a comedian who was known nationwide, who was the representative for this stuff because he was fat. And he, when he said he had heartburn, people would believe him. Zantac was pulled off the market because apparently it is linked to causing cancer. And to make it even more fun, Glaxo, the manufacturer, has known about this for 40 years. Comments, please. Yeah, I mean, it isn't that I mean, it's just another kind of, you know, chalk it up in the book of of, you know, pharmaceutical company and industry, you know, mal, mal maleficence, um, you know, next to thalidomide, Vivox and 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 the rest. Um to me, it's it it just speaks to this idea of um, yes, perhaps at one point they were providing very, very uh, important, you know, novel pharmaceuticals that were really extending people's life. But I think, um, as Marcia Angel, who was the any New England Journal um, head uh, ed- chief editor, said, I think she said that in the in the early 2010s that it's simply become a, a process of releasing, you know, drugs of ever diminishing efficacy um and you know increasing price and just pervasiveness of of pharmaceutical treatment so i mean it's it's not really surprising to me that there was an awareness of uh of of harm um because i mean the track record as far as we know is that 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 has happened and i think that will continue to happen as long as profit and not uh, patient health and outcomes uh, are the chief motivation Yeah, and I think, um, you know, it also speaks to the failure of our regulatory uh, organizations. I mean, when you look at, you know, this is what the FDA uh, here in the U.S. and, and, you know, the the equivalent organizations around the world are supposed to be protecting against. And, you know, what we have seen is that they have largely been captured, uh, the regulatory capture. And, you know, uh, here in the U.S., you know, the FDA is basically just a bunch of pharmaceutical executives. Uh, and it's it's literally, you know, the uh, 
that that the uh, wolves are are uh, you know sitting uh, or watching the hens. I mean, it, it it's really become a problem, and and I think unfortunately we're going to see more and more stories like that. Like you said, this isn't uh, unheard of. Uh, I mean, we can go back through medical history and see uh, many similar examples. Uh, but you know, when you look at something like thalidomide uh, and even Vioxx, uh, you know, those were those were picked up on you know, relatively quickly. I mean, you know, they weren't on the market, you know, 40 years uh, before uh, these issues were discovered. So um, the interesting thing about the Zantac is, is that, you know, uh, it has even been known about, you know, uh, by the regulators, there have been sort of intermittent recalls. There was, you know, it was initially blamed on some of the manufacturing processes and and some of the generic manufacturers overseas, uh, but uh, it, it it it's not my fault. It's not yeah, my fault. Exactly, exactly. So um, I think it just you know it points to the fact that the best uh, you know I, I've said it before on the show the best way to deal with the pharmaceutical industry is to not need pharmaceuticals. Um, you know uh, because uh, it it it's uh, it's hard to see their benefit. Uh, you know, when you're looking at chronic disease, like, like yeah. you said, you know, they've made lots of inroads, you know, uh, certainly early on, you know, infectious diseases, uh, you know, acute illnesses, uh, there's lots of things you can point to that, you know, pharmaceuticals do a great job of. Uh, but when it comes to chronic disease, it's really hard to start to find uh, benefit of these uh, pharmaceutical products. And it seems to be getting less and less beneficial and just focused more and more on generating profits. Well, yeah. and I think it's worthwhile saying that if I have an acute illness and there's a drug that fixes it, first of all, hooray, thank you, but it fixes it. And I don't need the drug after that. But if I've got a chronic disease, woohoo, I've got a, there's a drug that'll manage that for the rest of my life. And I'm, I'm just a crop at that point. I'm not a human being. I'm a crop. Yeah. I know I've said this before, but okay. Yeah. And, and people aren't, you know, people don't have the Lipitor deficiency. They don't have an azempic deficiency. And um, that, that, that's not what's the problem here. <laughs> the problem is the, the lifestyle. I'm Lipitor deficient. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No one is Lipitor deficient. Um, oh. So when, when you flip it and you pose it like that to patients, you know, you can get uh, a bit, bit of traction because they realize that this isn't the silver bullet to their, to their problem. Uh, I, I just wanted to make a comment about um final comment about the the drug companies and i really think that's relevant for any physicians that are listening um particularly which is that science has been weaponized incredibly effectively by the pharmaceutical industry and particularly by hidden evidence or unpublished evidence and you know the, the typical examples um are when you know a, a five studies are done four show a null finding you know, one shows a positive finding. The four that were had a null finding get put in the bottom drawer, and there's a publication bias that misportrays this as a as a highly effective drug because you've had one out of five stu studies show show a positive outcome. So, what I think that is a is a barrier or the reason why many drugs perhaps are are continually prescribed and even recommended by guidelines is that. There's a, a a 
some strings are being pulled at a very high level that misrepresent the efficacy through things like publication bias and this other type of you know weaponization of evidence-based medicine in in a way that the average doctor on the ground who doesn't have time to sift through all the totality of the evidence is simply unable to recognize so they will you know continue to 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 work through um, the, just based off of guidelines, which, as you mentioned, um, Philip, in the US, the FDA are a bunch of uh, pharmaceutical executives. So you can imagine how the influence percolates down into our treatment guidelines. And you know, Joe, Doctor Joe Sixpack, you know, on the uh, on the ground in terms of his daily treatment, isn't going through and realizing that the degree to which uh, the things that he or the the way he's being practiced is is has been influenced by. Uh, by an influence or, or or interests that are disconnected from the interests of his patients. Just yeah. a, a point yeah. of order here. In America, Joe Sixpack's a plumber. So it's cool to know that in Australia that he can actually be a doctor. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but he, does, he doesn't have a six-pack. Well, yeah. <laughs> He's holding um, a six-pack of beers, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's a six-pack of beer. And uh, yeah, so, you know, uh, one of the best uh, books that I read on that subject, uh, do, you know, Dr. Malcolm Kendrick, uh, Doctoring Data, and uh, he talks all about that uh, really, really, you know, a, a big problem for us in medicine that are trying to figure out, you know, uh, what is the right thing and what does the science tell us? Um, you know, before we wrap up, uh, I'd love to hear, you know, you're, you're still early career. Uh, so, you know, what are your plans moving forward? How do you plan on incorporating this into uh, medical practice? Yeah, so so I am, and I'm trying not to say anything uh, too too controversial too early. But what what I'm interested in, I guess, is implementing uh, more of an ancestral animal based diet in a range of areas, metabolic health for people with type two diabetes, obesity, um, fatty liver disease. That's a that's a key pillar. Um, I'm very interested in pregnancy and pre pregnancy preparation, um, particularly. Uh, improving the nutrient status of women prior to conceiving, because I think that's the ultimate, um, ultimate form of preventative medicine. If you can make a baby or help help a, a, a couple have a baby that doesn't have any of the um, negative epigenetic imprinting for obesity and metabolic disease, and a little bit about, um, I guess, pediatric or helping people. Uh, ha- eat a proper animal-based or a diet that is sufficient in fat-soluble vitamins so that we get you know, proper facial development. Um, I don't know if, if you're aware of the Western Price stuff, but essentially facial development self-related to nutrition. Um, so so those are – and then in the, obviously the tying in regenerative farming. And I'm, I'm working with a, a good friend of mine down here in Albury, uh, Jake Walkey, who has a regenerative farm, is producing the highest quality food. And what I see is that this solution, if, if we're advocating for people to eat a, a lot of, of meat and a lot of animal foods, it's our, our duty to to ensure that people or encourage where they can afford uh, the highest quality nutrient dense animal food. Um, and that, that and tying that in and making people realize that the health of their health is related to the health of the animals and the health of the land. So I guess those are those are the kind of main areas of my focus uh, at the moment, and um, we'll just be working towards that and, and seeing how we go um, uh, as those I guess progress. Well, tell us about your uh, your uh, your public face for those who aren't where where that you can treat them, but want to 
follow you and, and keep up with what you're working on and what you're talking about? What do you got? I know you've got a podcast. Yeah. So, so I've, I host a podcast called the regenerative health podcast. And I guess the, the reason for that title is that I'm emphasizing both regenerative farming and the fact that, you know, you can regenerate your body if you give it what it simply needs and you remove all the, the refined foods and all the kind of toxic inputs. So the regenerative health podcast, uh, and, you can find that on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on on YouTube, and I do in person consulting uh, at my family medicine practice at the Gardens Medical Group here in in Albury, New South Wales, Australia. Um, and I guess if anyone wants to contact me directly for um, for nutritional lifestyle uh, consulting, they can email me uh, regenerative health at proton me, and I'm sure um, we could do some some remote um, nutrition called consulting and lifestyle consulting uh, if they'd like. And I'll remind the audience that all that contact information will be on the show notes. So you don't have to, don't have to jot it down right now. All right. Very good. Well, we try to keep this at about an hour and that's where we're at. We're at about an hour. Any last words, Dr. Ovedia? No, just uh, really great uh, to be connected now with uh, Dr. Golane and uh, look forward to the day that we can uh, meet up maybe uh, on your side of the world or ours and uh, maybe share a side of lamb or uh, and uh, keep uh, keep fighting the good fight together. Yeah, great. Thank you so much, gentlemen. It was a, a pleasure to meet you, Jack, and um, great to see you again, um, Philip. Thank you again for, for the opportunity to speak to your, your audience. All right. Well, that is uh, Dr. Max Gohane. His uh, uh, podcast is Regenerative Regenerative Health. As a marketer, I might suggest a, an easier to say name, but uh, I'm looking at his uh, podcast website here. He's had, already had some really interesting guests. Um, so for those of you uh, on the south of the hemisphere, go to him first. North of the hemisphere, come see Dr. Ovedia first. How's that? All right. Well, this is the Stay Off My Operating Table podcast. I want to encourage you all to go uh, visit Phil's website, ifixarts.com. He's got the metabolic health quiz there that'll help you score yourself and get an idea of exactly where you are. Uh, and go ahead and hit that like and subscribe button here on the podcast. We drop a new episode every Tuesday. This one will drop uh, early March, I believe it is. And we'll talk to you all next time. Chances are, you wouldn't be listening to this podcast if you didn't need to change your life and get healthier. So take action right now. Book a call with Dr. Avadia's team. One small step in the right direction is all it takes to get started. Contact us at ifixhearts.com slash talk. That's ifixhearts.com slash talk.